Bibles, we are ready for Matthew. We're going to pick up where we left off, right where we left off last week in Matthew chapter 17, beginning in verse number 22. All right, let's look at verse number 22 of Matthew. And it says, now while they were sitting in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men and they will kill him. And the third day he will be raised up and they were exceedingly sorrowful. Who was exceedingly sorrowful? The disciples, Jesus is talking to them and, you know, Jesus is like on one of these reality show survivor shows, you know, how, how these guys, you ever watch these, everybody notice this, but me, every one of these survivor shows on the discovery channel or history channel. And these two guys are out in the wilderness and they're trying to survive and they're talking to the cameras. And one says, yeah, you got to watch out for those sticks because you could trip on them and die. And you got to watch out for that tree because if you lick it, it has a poison. And if it ingests it, you will die. And like everything they do is you're going to die. And so I don't know if Jesus is being dramatic here or not. I'm sure not because Jesus can't be dramatic, but it, it is kind of dramatic what he's telling him. Same thing he had been telling him for lots and lots of, of this part of his ministry. Now, Jesus has entered, as we know, you know, as we've gone through the gospel of Matthew, We've kind of broke down the stages of how the gospel of Matthew breaks up. And the stage that we're, we've entered in now without going back and doing review today because we don't have the time is Jesus is kind of withdrawn a little bit. After um, he, he was declared as king, he did public miracles, he healed people, he, he taught the Sermon on the Mount, he was declared a great teacher, the great healer, the great physician, and, and now he's to the point where there was this great opposition, and Jesus taught about the unpardonable sin, and, and, and the Sadducees, and the Pharisees, and the Sanhedrin, and the, and the groups that, that, that be, they had decided already at this point they were ready to kill Jesus. And so Jesus kind of withdraws and you don't see him in these populated areas anymore. And he spends more time um, personally with his disciples. He spends time sharing and teaching and, and he's as far north in Israel as you can be. And he's going to kind of stay in some isolated areas for this last few, few months of his life before he makes his final journey into Jerusalem where he knows that when, when they do see him again, they're going to capture him and arrest him and he'll be betrayed and killed. Now, one of the things he wanted to communicate to his disciples was that it was going to happen, that he was going to, and it was, it was meant to be that he would die on a cross. Now, what's powerful about Jesus dying on the cross is that nobody took Jesus's life. You know, it used to be this old argument about who killed Jesus and, you know, certain groups, and it was all racist and anti-Semitic and, and, and just wrong, but they would say, oh, the, the Jews killed Jesus, and they would call the Jews um, Jesus killers, and others would say, no, the Romans killed Jesus, and, you know, and, and the reality is that nobody killed Jesus, that you want to know who killed Jesus? Look in a mirror. You killed Jesus. I killed Jesus. Your sins and my sins and Jesus chose to die on the cross. Nobody took Jesus's life. Jesus gave his life freely. It's super important to the gospel. That, 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 that day that they arrested Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, there's a little detail in one of the gospels that we read and miss. But Jesus spoke in the Garden of Gethsemane and all the soldiers fell down backwards by the power of Jesus. I think he was like, whoops, I didn't mean to do that. He was trying to hold it back. You know, the, 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 they, they ripped his beard out of his face. They punched him in his face. They spit upon him. And, and the very spit that they used to spit upon him, he created inside of him. The very fist that they used to punch him, he designed 
in creation. And, and the Bible says that Jesus holds all things together, and it wasn't a lack of power. Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane to Peter, Peter pulled out his sword. Do you guys remember the story? And Peter wasn't messing around. It says that he cut off the guy's ear. Now listen, Peter wasn't Zorro. Like he didn't carve a Z in the guy's chest after, after he cut his ear off. He came up and he's a fisherman and he was trying to split that guy's wig. He was trying to put that sword right between his eyes. And Peter went to hit that guy and he dodged and he moved at the last second. And that sword bounced off the side of his forehead or his head and cut his ear off. Probably landed, his blade probably landed in his shoulder. And Jesus picked the guy's ear up. And the last miracle that Jesus does is to heal somebody that one of the disciples hurt. And Jesus puts his ear back on. And then what does he tell Peter? Something so important. He says, Peter, put your sword away. He said, no man takes my life, but I give it freely. And then he said, if I wanted to, Peter, I could call seven legions of angels to my side. Now, the quick math, or 10 legions, I think he said, because the math is 72,000, 12 legions, 12,000 per legion. 72,000 angels Jesus said, I could call to my side right now to fight for me. In the Bible, we see one night, one angel of the Lord goes through and wipes out 135,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. So one angel versus 135,000 armed men for war. Angel wins 135,000 men dead on the battlefield when the morning sun rises. That's the kind of power that one angel has. And Jesus said, I could call 72,000 angels to my side, it's not a lack of power. I willingly give my life. And, and, and so the, the concept was important for them to understand because as we're going to see in a minute, they, they, they believed and they understood from the Old Testament that when God fulfilled the promise of Messiah coming, that Messiah would rule and reign, that Messiah would overthrow the Roman government and set up an earthly kingdom. And all of those things Jesus is going to do and the Old Testament prophesied all of those things. But the Old Testament had two veins of prophecy, one concerning Jesus's first coming, where he came fulfilled in the past, born as a baby in Bethlehem, died on a cross in Jerusalem, rose again the third day, fulfilled. And and Jesus is coming back and he's going to rapture the church prior to his coming back. And he's going to take us to a seven year feast and celebration with him as the bride of Christ. And at the end of seven years, we're going to rule and reign with him. We're going to follow him on white horses to a famous battle called the Battle of Armageddon, where Jesus is finally going to defeat Satan and and, and the the armies of Antichrist. And then he's going to set up an earthly kingdom here for a thousand years before he lets Satan out of prison one last time. And then we'll go into eternal heaven and eternal hell phase of life is what the Bible teaches. Where Jesus says he'll, he'll create a new heaven and a new earth. And he'll take the temporary hell and he'll cast it into eternal lake of fire. And, and so we, we will. And, the, and those prophecies are all throughout the Old Testament. And it was hard. And you can understand living um, 2,000 years ago and prior to, to a lot of the information that we have today. They had a hard time understanding and telling the difference between what was his first coming and his second coming. And they jumbled the two. And even his own disciples and the Jews believed that when Messiah came, he would fulfill all these things. So Jesus had a really hard time communicating to them that he was going to actually die a miserable and brutal and violent death. And then in verse 24, it says, And when they had come to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax 
came to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the temple tax? And Peter said, uh, uh, yes, yeah, 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 he pays it, he pays it. You know Peter, right, with his, with his foot in his mouth half the time, he doesn't know what he's talking about, and he's like, oh, uh, yes, sure he does. Now, this is not the tithe or the offering. This is a tax. It wasn't by the Roman government. It actually came from the, the Jewish folks, the, the tribe of Levi, and it was a tax that you paid a temple tax on, part, on top of your tithes and offering. It was like the chair tax that we're charging you to sit in your chair. So this, this temple tax, the, those that were in charge of it came and they asked Peter, you know, are you and Jesus and, and the guys, are you going to pay this temple tax? And it just says, Peter's like, oh, yeah. And then when he had come into the house, so Jesus obviously was in a house somewhere. It says, I love this. Jesus anticipated him saying it. So Jesus kind of knew what he was going to say. And so Peter, Jesus just jumps in. He knows his heart. He knows what he's thinking. I just like to hang out with Jesus. You walk in the room and he just knows what you're thinking. You know, you have to say nothing like, you know, you'd probably come in with like one of those metal helmets on to try to block him from reading your mind. And he says, what do you think, Simon? And that was Peter's name, right? Simon Peter. What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings on the earth that take customs or taxes from their sons or from the strangers? And Peter said to him, well, from the strangers, I guess, Lord. And Jesus said to him, then the sons are free, right? And Peter's like, yeah, well, I guess. So when the king goes to tax and he needs to collect money, what does the king do? Does he leave his, his bedroom and walk down the long hallways of his palace and knock on the doors of his oldest son and then his next son and then his daughter and say, hey, taxes due. You guys pay these taxes to the king. Is that what the king does? No, that's what Jesus said. He said, no, the king doesn't ask his sons for taxes. He goes out and he taxes the people. The sons then are free because they're a part of the kingdom. So in other words, Jesus is basically saying, this is my kingdom. That's my temple. And I don't have to pay taxes. I'm, I'm the king of kings and Lord of lords. And I'm not required to pay these taxes. And you're not required either because you're the 12 disciples and you're the sons of the king. And you're the children of God. And so he's telling Peter that legally, you know, because here's the problem. The, the, the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees, they're constantly trying to jam up Jesus and the disciples about nonsense about traditions of men about things that were not biblical that were not godly that had nothing to do with right and wrong and had everything to do with their traditions and their views and so jesus here again is saying that even though they're complaining peter we're not we're not doing anything wrong by not paying these taxes but then jesus said in verse 27 nevertheless not because we have to right but in case just so we don't offend them Go to the sea, cast a hook, take up the fish that comes up first. And when you have opened its mouth, you will find a piece of money and take that and give that to them for me and you. So Jesus takes care of it. He performs a miracle and he has Peter go down. How many of you guys have been fishing, reel in a fish and you open its mouth and there's hundred dollar bills in there? <laughs> Nobody rolled up hundred dollar bills. That'd be kind of sweet, huh? You know, what's kind of interesting, just kind of a side note here. How does Peter catch this fish? With a hook. So they were using, and, and, you know, a hook is with a pole, a fishing pole. So I don't know if he had like a pin free spinning reel or if he had like what he had, but a piece of bamboo with a string on it. It doesn't know how they hook. But most of the fishing that they did was done cast with nets, personal nets, and then the big boat nets where you'd go out, the same type of fishing. You'd throw the net out, you'd cast it in. And, and it's just kind of cool. The Bible records here that even then they, they had some kind of system for fishing pole and line and hook. Okay, now in chapter 18, there's, there's a little bit of a shift, still the same section though. 
And so I, I want us to understand that Jesus has just introduced for the first time the concept of the local church or the church. Everybody say the church. <laughs> so the church, the Greek word is inglesia. Okay, that's not like Julio. That was something else, right? Inglesias. Iglesias. Ingle- so now I'm not even going to be able to get it. Iglesia. That's all I'm going to be able to say now. So Julio, we'll just call it church Julio. No, Inglesia, it's, it's a Greek word that means gathering. And Jesus used it often when he said church. He said, I will build my Inglesia and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The same word is used, the same Greek word is used in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, when it says, do not forsake the Inglesia of the brethren. And the same Greek word can be, trans- can be translated church or gathering. And so it's interesting that Jesus used a very kind of... Um, nonchalant almost, or common term that just meant a gathering place where believers gathered. And and, and the idea is that all the way through what what the apostles did, what the disciples did, was they started Inglesias. They started the local church. And and, and a place where where people gather together. And it's important for us as Christians. You know, I hear people say from time to time, you know, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. And and it's very true. You know, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. But if you are a Christian... You should want to go to church. And the fact that you don't want to be around other Christians and be in place where Christians gather, the, the issue is probably not that you can't be a Christian. Probably the issue is that you're probably just not a Christian if, if, if you don't want to be around other Christians or in a place where Christians gather and worship. And God encourages it. He doesn't want us to be alone. You know, the time when people leave the church the most is when they're going through something really difficult or personal in their lives. And we see it a ton. We see it a ton. You know, I won't see somebody for a while and they'll come back and something difficult had gone on in their lives and they just retreated. And, you know, it's the worst time to leave. There's time when you need to be here more than any other time. You know, the church is a family and it's a battlefield out there. You know, the worst thing, you know, if you're in, if you're in a unit, you're in a Marine Corps, or you're in army and you're, you're fighting a real battle and you're wounded. What's the absolute tactically worst thing that you could do? Separate yourself from your unit. Be alone. Be injured and alone. And, and that's unfortunately what, what, what happens. And God encourages and Jesus encourages. Now in this section in 18, I want us to keep it in the context of Inglesia because that's where we are. It's what it is in context. And as we go through, there's some characteristics that God wants you and I as local church members to have. There's, there's a thing here where we, we call it church discipline, how we deal with discipline in the church we'll cover. Um, And so it is about church discipline, but it's in the context of reconciliation, of love, of forgiveness, of humility or the things that Jesus talks about. So let's let's go through it. Chapter 18, it says, and at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of God? You know, these knuckleheads are like, seriously, like, you know, Jesus is telling him he's going to die on a cross and suffer a terrible death. And he's teaching them humility and love and forgiveness and and integrity and all these guys can think about is which one is going to rule and reign. And he just got through telling them like, hey, I'm going to die. And they still had this concept. And, you know, I'm sure Peter it does. The Bible doesn't tell us, but I can only imagine this was Peter who brought up this conversation. He was feeling pretty good about himself after what Jesus said to him in chapter 17. And, you know, and he goes to the other disciples. and He's like, yeah, you know, God, father speaks to me personally and reveals things to me. And you know, I'm the one that gets to go on the Mount Transfiguration with Jesus and on and on and on. The other disciples are like, yeah, but Jesus didn't call us Satan and he called you Satan. And, you know, they're having this argument back and forth. And Peter says, you know, I'm positive it's me. Well, let's go ask Jesus. 
So they come and they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus called a little child to him and he set him in the midst of them. And he said, assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, you knuckleheads are arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Listen, you're not even going to get into the kingdom of heaven unless you become like this little child. Now, what is it about a little child that Jesus is drawing truth from? What is it about that little child that you and I, because this applies to you and I, you and I have to become like that little child to go to heaven. What, what part is it? There's a childlike faith. There's a childlike trust. You know, the amazing thing about teaching children is that when you tell the children in the Sunday school, Jesus walked on the water. When you tell them that Peter went down to the Sea of Galilee and he cast a hook and when he reeled it in, he opened the fish's mouth and there was money inside there. They just believe. They just naturally have a faith that believes. Some adults, you tell them Jesus walked on water, and they want to know what is the scientific molecule breakdown of the H2O. You know, it's like this, this intellectualizing, and they want to intellectually understand how, how these things happen and how to understand them. And if they can intellectualize them, they'll believe them. But a child doesn't do that. A child just believes. Does that mean that your your and my faith is then just a blind faith without facts and substance? Absolutely not. Faith is the substance of things unseen. It's the facts of things we don't see. It's the proof of things we don't see. The Bible tells us in Hebrews. And they can all be substantiated. But that there is a requirement. And the Bible says without faith, it's impossible to please God. So if you're sitting here today, God bless you. And you have the opinion that as soon as you understand it intellectually, then you'll believe it. You'll never be a believer. Because you have to have a childlike faith and God's not going to honor it. And you don't like that? Well, when you're God and you create your own universe and you send your son to die on a cross, you get to make the rules. But until then, you get to abide by the rules that God has created. And God says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. And so he expects us to take a step of faith first and, and, and I'll tell you as a pastor, as, as just a Christian first, who's been walking with the Lord for 25 years, once, once you believe first, then God does begin to reveal things intellectually to you. God does begin then to help you understand things on an intellectual and a factual level. But it does first take that faith. And children have it. Children just naturally. You know the thing children do? Your children trust you. When's the last time your, your four-year-old, your five-year-old came up to you and said, Mommy... How are we going to pay the light bill this month? <laughs> Never, right? They don't worry about how the light bill is going to get paid. They just trust that when they get they go in their room and turn the light on, the light's going to come on. They just believe there's going to be food on the table. They just naturally trust you to provide for them as their parents. And God wants us to naturally just trust that he's going to provide for us as his kids. And, and so there's, there's this value in this childlike faith. And there's also something, too, um, naturally that's happening here where, where Jesus is giving a value to, to young people. And then we'll pick it up here in a minute. And then he says, um, therefore, verse 4, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So the way up is down in God's kingdom. Everybody say, the way up is down. Jesus said, if you want to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, you have to learn to be what? Humble here. In another place, he said, if you want to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, you have to learn to be the servant of all. What? That makes no sense in, in a Fortune 500 company. That makes no sense on Wall Street. If I want to be the greatest on Wall Street, I got I to gotta do fight and kick and 
and, and, and do whatever it takes to get to the top. And Jesus said, if you want to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, you have to become a slave. <laughs> you just got to do what everybody else tells you all the time and, you know, have no rights of your own. And, and so the way up is down. And so here he's explaining this concept that's so different to the disciples that you have to be humble and he requires a humility. Now, the number one sin in the Bible is pride. It is the besetting sin. So many other things come from pride. Even, even some sexual um, deviance and sins come from the, the sin of pride. There, there was a pastor, and, and he fell into sexual sins. And you hear it, unfortunately, all too often. A pastor is having an affair, stole the church account, or he did this, or he did that. And, and for one particular pastor, Sin was a sexual sin, but the reality was the problem, the root of what it, what it was, was that it was his pride. And pride is a sin the Bible talks about that is a besetting sin. It's the one that feeds into the rest. It's the one that, that, that is the most powerful and everything is born out of it. And it's the one that God has the most to say against is the, is the sin of pride. When Satan fell from heaven, the Bible identifies what his sin was that caused him to fall from heaven. Now, there were some underlying factors. There were some things that other things that happened. But his number one sin, Satan's was, anybody know? was pride. The Bible tells us because pride filled Satan's heart, God kicked him out of heaven. And, and so God doesn't, in the Bible, all the way through has verses like, God will humble the, pri- the proud and he'll lift up the humble. He'll raise you up. And so if you want to lift yourself up, God will put you low. If you put yourself low, God will raise you up. One of the concepts that the Lord uses to illustrate, he says, when you come into a gathering, into a wedding or a feast or some place, he said, don't come and sit in the seat of honor. Like, you know, I belong here. This is the seat of honor. I'm going to come sit up in the front in the seat of honor, or the head of the table. He says, but in your humility, go sit in the back of the table. And then you'll find out where you really belong. Because if you stay in the back, the rest, you'll, you'll know it's where you belong. But if the host of the dinner comes up to you and says, hey, what are you doing sitting back here? Come sit in the place of honor. Now, when you sit there, you know that it was it was the place you were supposed to sit. But God wants us as his people to be humble. Um, The way up is down. And so, you know, the Bible says to you real quickly to humble yourself. James tells you that. Now, I want to just tell you from personal experience. That's good advice. One time I said I was, you know, I was such a Christian as your pastor. I'm so spiritual. I said, God. Yeah, that was a joke. You guys laughed. that know me, right? Yeah, right. Um, I said, God, will you humble me? I just need to be humble. I just, will you? <laughs> and the Lord showed up. And he, I, 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 I got to tell you the whole story now. We were playing church softball. I was in a church softball league. And I was a much younger man than I am now. And I uh, was somewhat athletic as a kid. And so there was like the championship game and the two really good soft church softball teams. And it wasn't all that, right? It was co-ed church softball. But um, when I was playing shortstop that day and, the other team, you know, I really was respected the people on the other team, and I just wanted to have a good day. The whole church came out to watch the championship game, you know, big church, bunch of people there, co-ed softball thing. And I'm like, Lord, humble me. Don't let me get full of pride today out here on shortstop. And, you know, when I'm hitting home runs and I'm killing this day today, I just, I just want to stay humble. <laughs> Dude, it was the, I'm not kidding. And, and I, I'm not the greatest, but I can catch a softball when it's thrown at my face, you know. I could not routine grounders were coming right at me and I couldn't catch them. I was kicking them down the thing and trying to pick them up. And I, I went to throw them to first. I threw it over the fence and some girl was in the dugout. I hit her in the neck with the ball. It, it just kept going and going and going. And finally I'm like, okay, Lord, I'm humbled. I'm so embarrassed. I mean, people were there like, 
that have never seen me play before, and they're like, what in the world is this guy doing standing on shortstop? Dude, he must be in charge of this team. You need to put him back in the dugout. And it was so, I was so embarrassed that day, and I, I never again will ask the Lord to humble me. From now on, I'm like, okay, Lord, I got it. I get it. What James said, James said, humble yourself. I'll, I'll humble myself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift me up. And then Jesus goes on, and it says, um, verse 5, whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. Now, what does that tell you about children's ministry? If you receive one child in the name of Jesus, it says that, that it's receiving him personally. Now, I know some of these snot-nosed brats over there, you don't exactly think you're receiving Jesus when, you, when you're over there, but to minister to them and to work with them. I think it was D.L. Moody, famous preacher D.L. Moody, who came home one day after church and he told his wife, two and a half people got saved at church today. And she said, what do you mean two and a half people? Like two adults and one kid? He's like, no, two kids and one adult. The adult wasted half his life already. He threw it away. The kids have their whole lives in front of them to walk with Jesus and to serve the Lord and do big things for the Lord. And, you know, the thing is, how many of you guys have ever been to the mall around Christmas time, right? It's coming up where, you know, Santa Claus is there and the parents are trying to get the kids to sit on Santa's lap. Right. Some of you shaking your heads as parents, you've done it right. And your kids freaking out and, you know, they don't want to sit on his lap. And if you do get a picture, they're crying and it's crazy. And, um, because Santa Claus is scary, and the kids know that. He looks, he looks scary to them. But what's cool about Jesus is when we see it here in other places, the kids were never afraid of him. The kids didn't have any problem coming and sitting on his lap, and Jesus was welcoming and inviting, and the kids loved him. It tells you something about Jesus. And the fact that Jesus loved the kids and that Jesus spent time with them, and, and the, another story, it says that Jesus was, the kids were coming, and they wanted to sit on his lap and hang out with him and talk to him, and the disciples were trying to keep him back, and it says that Jesus rebuked the disciples, and he said, let the little children come to me. And so receiving the little children, um, an amazing way to share the gospel, because kids have that childlike faith. Somewhere in life, we grow up, and we get cynical, and we lose that that childlike faith, and you know, really, statistically, if you can reach a child, if, if a child's introduced and has shared the gospel during that stage of life, they're so much more likely to become Christian, to get saved, to believe. And the later the, 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 the stats go way down that the older people get, the less and less number of people come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, the older they get. And by the time they get past their 50s or 60s, the numbers are even much, much, much lower of people that are coming to saving grace in Jesus. In verse 6, it says, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses. For offenses must come, but woe to the man by whom they do come. So the Lord knows that there will be some injustices um, with children. But God says, woe to the man by who they come. So don't let it be you. There's going to be offenses. There's going to be crimes. There's going to be terrible things that are happening. You know, we live in a, we live in a world right now where I wouldn't want to be a college professor in this nation. It, 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 because 90% of them, their number one goal is to rob the faith of Christian young people that are coming to college. Lydia, my wife, she took an art history class and she... Um, she graduated summa cum laude with her bachelor degree and she's super brilliant and just got a gift of God for school. She's never got to be her whole life and in any grade. And, and she's in an art history class, like her third year of college. And, um, the very first class lecture was about the fact mocking people that believed that there were Hebrew slaves or in Egypt. What does that have to do with art history? 
And the whole lecture was just denying what the Genesis and Exodus account of the Bible said about, about the Hebrews being in, in, in slavery in Egypt in those days. And, and, and again, just on and on and on and on where everything is mocking and, you know, causing little ones to fall away from the Lord, causing people to stumble. You don't want to be that. Jesus didn't say he would put a millstone around your neck and throw you into the deepest ocean. He said that would be better for you. The millstone is a big, solid granite rock that he would hang around your neck and throw you overboard with, and you'd go down pretty fast. He said, that would be grace compared to what's going to happen to those that cause these little ones to stumble in my name. And then he says, um, so it's good to know in verse 7, too, there's justice. I wrote justice near, near that in my Bible. It gives me a little bit of comfort to know that Jesus is going to bring justice for those that harm children. And in verse 8, it says, if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off, cast it from you, for it is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. So um, verse 9 says, and if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes and be cast into hellfire. So Jesus says in verse 8, everlasting fire. In verse 9, he says, hellfire. Jesus spoke more about hell than any of the other biblical um, writers in the New Testament. And there was, there was many different, 27 books in the New Testament, lots of different authors. But Jesus himself spoke more of hell and Hades than any other um, writer in the New Testament, which tells us that Jesus believed in the reality of a heaven and a hell. And so, again, it's not a scare tactic. It's a reality of life. And it's not being fanatical or, you know, unkind to say that there's a heaven and a hell. That's what Jesus taught. And if Jesus believed it, then it's good enough for me. And Jesus taught it. And he taught it over and over and over and over again in warning. And so... Um, the, the, the verse, the, the verbiage in 8 and 9, it's very strong, right? It's very violent. It says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Now, does, does the Bible literally, does Jesus expect you, if you're, if you're a man in here and, and you're using your right eye to, to look at a woman lustfully and it's causing you to sin to pluck your right eye out? Why not? What's the problem? You've still got a left eye to check it out with, right? Like, you know, you've you, you still got a left eye to sin with. And the problem is not a condition of your eyes. The problem, and, and you know, I know, I, know, I know a blind guy, no, no kidding, that was the most perverted guy I ever met in my life. He was blind from birth. He didn't need any eyes to lust. And, and the issue is not your eyes. The issue is your heart. You, you cut your right hand off, your left hand still has the ability to sin. The issue is the heart. But Jesus uses this strong language not for you to literally mutilate yourself, but for, for, to, get, to tell you the truth about how sin affects your life. And sin is so devastating that, that God uses this strong language to tell you you have to cut it out. You have to annihilate it. You, here, here's, the, here's the reason. I think our concept about things that are bad for us or things in our life that cause pain to our family members or to us or to people that love us the most that, that are bad behavior that we do or bad habits that we have, that somehow we can, we can um, reform those. We can do them a little less. We can control them. We can regulate them. And, and it never works. You can never reform sin. You can never regulate the amount or the type of sin that you have. And the Bible is very clear that it's not going to work. You have to cut it off, get rid of it 100%, annihilate it out of your life. And then Jesus uses the example, it's better for you to go to heaven with, with one arm because you cut the other one off 
because it was causing you to sin than, it, than to go into hellfire with two arms. It was like that guy here in, in southern Utah. Remember him? 27 hours and that boulder smashed his arm between the, in the cave and he was there for a couple of days by himself before he took his pocket knife out and cut his own arm out. He'd rather be with one arm and live. I always tell people, you're going to be able to find me in heaven. I guarantee it. I'll be the only guy in heaven that doesn't have a right foot because that thing is definitely not Christian. That thing is going to hell. The way I drive and as fast as I drive, I'm de- that thing's definitely not saved. So it's not going. But the rest of me, I'll be the guy up in heaven either limping or I'll have a fake leg. Wear my J's on a peg leg or something. But um, that thing's definitely not going to heaven. And then in verse 10, it says, Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you, and here again, Jesus is using um, these little ones and he's sticking along this theme. And now it's about love. We've already talked about humility and justice. And again, in the context of the Inglesia, and we'll get directly into the, the context of the church here in a minute. But Jesus says, take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven. The son of man has come to save that which was lost. And so the whole heart is that Jesus loves the lost. And he's reminding the, these, these disciples and the folks here that, and you and I that he, he, he loves the lost. And he loves people that are, are, are not like you and I, are different. And, and that Jesus was, was called a friend of tax collectors and sinners. They called him a, a drunk and a glutton and a wine-bibber and they, they, because he, was, he was spent time with these people in order to reach them with the gospel and to love them. And so, you know, that Jesus loves all people and the gospel is for all people and the gospel is for all races. And even in our churches, you know, everybody is welcome if, if the purpose is to share the gospel and the love of Jesus. And we want people that come in church that don't always believe the same way we believe and, and, and for them to feel welcome here and for them to come and, and be a part, whether, whether they believe exactly everything we believe or not, who cares? The gospel's for all people. We, we, we want to love all people. We want all people. It's super important. You know, maybe somebody that comes that's an atheist. And, you know, we're going to do the Halloween outreach here in a couple days. And I remember last year, maybe the year before last, I was out there and I was passing out flyers and smiling, inviting everybody to church. And this one guy comes walking by and he's got he some devil costume on or something. And I, uh, I went to hand him a flyer and, and he, he looked at me and he's like, I'm an atheist, homie. And then he turns like this to show me on the back of his head. He's got this like tattoo of Satan's head on the back of his head. It looked gnarly, big horns on it. He wanted to show me his tattoo. So he turned his back to me and I said, I said, it's cool, man. Atheists need Jesus too. You need to come to church, man. And I said, he'd be welcome in our church. You know, we come and, and be a part. And so th- this last section is um, not last, second to last section as we wrap up here in a minute is um, the idea that, that Jesus loves and he, and he wants you and I to love. He loves you unconditionally. He loves you personally. That's something that I'd like to try to communicate today. He loves you with a deep, practical, intense love. He's going to illustrate that in a minute by saying that he had 99 sheep and he left the 99 to get the one. Let's, let's look what it says in verse 11. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. In verse 12 it says, What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the 99 and go to the mountain and seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, as surely I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the 99 that did not go astray. Now Jesus loves you personally. He loves you practically. He loves you intently. 
Now, what, what I think that we think about God, now listen, I want you to catch this today if you catch anything, is that God has so many children and so many people um, are, are the children of God that God loves kind of in a blanket and he loves kind of corporately and he died corporately and he died for, the, you know, for humanity, but, he, but not individually. And he's got so many people that are praying and he's got, you know, Mother Teresa who gets up at four in the morning and prays for four hours every day and he's spending time with her and Billy Graham is talking to him and, you know, that he doesn't really have time for little old me or that he doesn't take my concerns and my life intimate and personal. But Jesus, absolutely. And here's the thing. You want your life to change? You want your Sunday to change your Monday? Listen to this and hear this and receive this, that Jesus loves you personally. Jesus loves you individually. And if you were the only person, he would have still died for you on the cross. Now, that's hard to believe. It's hard to really believe that concept, but that is a concept of the individual love of God, that God so individually loves you. And if you can take the idea that God loves you personally, that's how I became a Christian. That's what saved and changed my life is when I understood that God loved me personally. And, and how did I find it out? I found out because he told me. He said to me like a lot of times in about a three-week period, I love you. I love you. I love you. And I was so unlovable. I was such a jerk at that time in my life. And I said, what do you mean you love me? I'm a creep and you know it. And he said, I know. I love you anyways. <laughs> and I said, how can you love me? It drove me crazy. It made me mad. It made me really mad. I'm like, you shouldn't love me. He said, I know, but I love you anyways. And that was, that's what changed my life. Not any rules, not any regulations. It was the love of God. But it, what, what, what about the love of God that changed my life was when, then I, when I received it and I took it and I knew it intimately and personally. And that's the whole point of Jesus leaving the 99 to go after the one. It seems kind of reckless, right? It seems kind of like, why would you leave 99? They're just sheep. They're dumb sheep, right? Sometimes we think when we hear about, about the, the shepherd giving his life for the sheep when the wolf comes, you're like, well, how many sheep can a wolf eat, right? Like, he probably can't even get through one. It's all right. He can afford one. We got 99 more. And, w- and when you consider us all as the children of God, God's saying, I don't view any of you that way. Who in here has three kids or more? Give me a nod or a raise. Four? Five? Six, seven, <laughs> seven, eight, <laughs> nine kids, eight kids, eight kids. All right. Awesome. So what if, um, what if you guys lost one of them? Would you say, oh, what the heck? I got seven more, you know, <laughs> right? I got four kids. And if I, if I lost one of them, would I just say, oh, I got three more. You wouldn't, you wouldn't, you know, when you think, when you bring it to a, to a level of your own, we had this family just moved in the cross street from Lydia and I and. I think they have like 11 kids, his, hers, and ours, and they are everywhere. And so like a lot of them are young, so they're not in school yet, so they're all over the place. But, you know, 11 kids. But if you lose one of your 11 kids, do you say, oh, well, no, I has got 10 more. You know, you don't, right? Because they're your children. I can remember, you know, and then the other idea is that he says when he finds them, he rejoices. And just like in the story of the prodigal son, the prodigal son, he, he wastes all the living. He actually, he has an inheritance. But what he does is he goes in that culture and he says, dad, I want my inheritance now. And his dad gives him, before his dad even dies, what would have been his when his dad was ready to turn it over. And he takes it at a young age and he goes out and the Bible says he spends it on loose living, on, on prostitution and gambling and, and drinking and partying and drugs and, and living loose and, and entertaining all of his friends along the way. 
And when it all runs out, he comes home with nothing. And he's so broken that he decides rather than, than just continuing to live in a pig pen that he was literally living in and eating the pods the pigs were eating, he said, I'll just go home and ask my dad if I can just act like one of his hired servants. And it says, when the father seen him afar off, that he ran and embraced him and he fell on his neck and he kissed him and he gave him the, 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 the best robe and a new ring and he slaughtered the fatted calf and he was rejoiced that the son that was lost came home. And the older brother is there and he's kind of upset. And sometimes we can identify with the older brother in the story a little bit because the older brother says, Dad, I've never left you. I've always been true to you and, 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 and you've never slaughtered the fatted calf for me. But, but when the son that comes home, it doesn't mean that Jesus and that God loves us any less because he rejoices when the lost are found. You know, have you guys ever, you know, with eight kids, you guys have probably experienced this. You ever lose one of your kids? You ever go to Disneyland or you go to the park and you can't find one? What happens? Like you start screaming their name. Hey, where are you? And then the people around you hear it and it's a missing child. So they're freaking out and they're starting to scream the name. And, you know, and then the kid's like just right there was over at the swings or something and comes over and is like, what are you guys freaking out for? I'm right here. And what do you do? You run over to him. I can't believe you're not dead. Oh my God, you're alive. Thank you. And you're hugging him and they think you're crazy and you're kissing him. And it's not that you love the other seven any less. It's that the one that was lost is found and there's a rejoicing as a parent when you see him. And God is no different. God rejoices when the lost are found, you know. You don't do that in the morning. You don't wake up the next morning and your child is in the, bre- in the, in the kitchen having breakfast and you run over to him and you say, oh my gosh, I love you. How are you? And hug him every time you see him. They think you're crazy. Because they're there. They're a child. But when you lost them at Disneyland for 10 minutes and then you were reunited with them, there was... There's a real feeling of, of, of joy and rejoicing. And that's what this illustrates here, that the father, when he loses one and they come home, the Bible says that, that, that the, there's more rejoicing over the one who was lost that was found than the 99 who, who need not saving. And then verse 15. Now, we are so out of time, and I was going to so get through all this today because it was important that I covered it. But I guess maybe we'll cover this one. The last one is forgiveness. Maybe we're not going to get to the last one, but we'll see. But we got four minutes to cover this one. Now, really quickly, um, verse 15 through 20 of Matthew 18 is an important section in the area of church government, in the area of church discipline. It's the Bible's prescription for how you and I, listen, this applies to you, how we deal with conflict in the church, how we deal with conflict among brothers, okay? Now, but I want to tell you that the heart of this whole chapter, the heart of this whole thing is reconciliation. The the heart of this whole concept, when we study the Bible, we use a 20-20 method. 20 verses before, 20 after, so we can see clearly um, that, that in context, he's dealing with the fact that we're a church, we're the Inglesia, that we're going to have issues. We were a church, and, and if you put any people in a church, then guess what you're going to have? Problems. If you don't want any problems, then just find a church that has no people. Or if you want a perfect church, you know, they don't exist. But if you do find one, don't join it because you'll ruin it. Because there are no perfect churches or perfect people. And, and so, but in this concept, God is giving us actually some, some um, rules and some things for us to be together in the gathering. Because there's naturally going to be problems and this is how we deal with them. But the heart of all this, all the way through, is reconciliation. Now, you're going to miss 
all of this, if you don't catch the heart of what God is teaching here and what Jesus is teaching, is that it's so that we reconcile. You know, one of the most important verses for us to remember as a church, and it's so simple that even we could get it. The Bible says this about you and I, to you and I, for you and I. It'll radically change our church. It will help a, a, a ton. The Bible says this. You guys ready? Ready to handle this? You got your intellectual thinking ready? Be kind, period. Be kind to each other. Be nice. Just be nice. That's it. That's what the Bible says. Be kind. You know how much problems we'd solve around church if people were just nice to one another and just generally kind and cared? So when we do have conflict, look what, look what it says. So this is what we call the Matthew 18. You'll hear me say that from time to time. Did you Matthew 18 that problem? When I say that to you, this is what I'm talking about. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him. Everybody read the next word real loud. Alone. Alone. Does that mean on Facebook? Does that mean on Twitter where you air your dirty laundry, by the way? I'm going to give you free. I'm all kind of free notes for you guys today. You didn't have to pay for these. Facebook is not the place for your, to air your dirty laundry. It is not the place for your drama. Save it for your mama. It's not. We don't want to hear about it. We don't care. Quit, quit it. Quit it. It's a bad witness for Jesus when you get all kinds of trouble. Facebook, keep Facebook, you know, smiley emojis and fun stuff and what you had. And, you know, people get sick of your pictures of your dinner, but I'd rather see pictures of your steak and your, what you ate than, you know, listening to you rant on Facebook about this or that and, and being a bad witness for Jesus and being grumpy all the time. Real simple on Facebook. Let me give you the, 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 the parameter. Be kind. Be nice. So here, real quick, three-part three, three part step. i got to walk through it quickly now. We're out of time. First step, if you have a problem with somebody in the church, you go to them alone. You go directly to that person and you say, hey, this offended me. This is sin. This is a problem. Can we reconcile? Can we talk about it? And then look what it says at the end of verse 15, after alone. It says, if he hears you, you have what? Gains your brother. Listen, none of this is going to work if your heart in reconciliation in the first half, if your heart is to be right, if your heart is to go and, and, and just show them why you're right and they were wrong or why they offended you and they need to apologize and your heart of the matter is not reconciliation, then it's the heart of Jesus anyways. But the heart of this is you go to them and you talk to them alone. You don't air it. You don't go tell 100 people. You don't put it on Facebook. You don't tweet it. You don't get offended. And you, you, you go to them and you try to reconcile. And if you can't, the next step, verse 16, but if he will not take heed with you, one or two, take one or two more with you, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, everyone may be established. And if he refuses to hear it, then, the, then tell the church. But if he refuses even to he'll, tell the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Basically, excommunicate him. Now, the, the fourth part of the process, you go to the brother just alone. It doesn't work. Then you go get a witness, a friend. You go back to him. You have the conversation again. You try to reconcile. It doesn't work. Then you go get leadership from the church, part three, and you try to reconcile with this brother. If that doesn't work, then the person, um, and these are words in red, which means what? Jesus is talking. Then you kick the person out of church. What? Did Jesus really say you kick somebody out of church? Yeah, lots of times. Okay. And, and, and again, with the purpose of reconciliation, nobody got kicked out of the church for a punitive decision based on the word of God. 
you got kicked out of the church because it, it, because you wouldn't repent and the whole point was to get you to repent and the whole point was to get you to reconcile with your brother. We have an example in the Corinthian church. There was a guy who was sleeping with his dad's wife, his stepmom, and he was coming to church and bragging about it. I'm sleeping with my dad's wife. And the, and the Corinthian church wrote and said, man, we're such a tolerant church. We love people in our church so much. Everybody's welcome in this beautiful place. Matter of fact, we have a guy in our church. He's sleeping with his mom. We're, we're that progressive. We're that cool. That's what they said. That's what the Corinthian church said. And Paul said, what are you doing? He said, turn that guy over to Satan. What? Paul tells us to turn somebody over to Satan? Isn't that harsh? With the goal of, of repentance, with the goal of, rest, of reconciliation. That was really Paul's heart for that guy. And you know what happened in the story? They turned the guy over to Satan because originally when they came to him, he wouldn't repent. So they turned him over to Satan and kicked him out of the church because he was having an adulterous affair with his, with his, with his mom and wouldn't repent. And then guess, what, guess how the rest of the story goes? When he was outside, God got a hold of his heart. The guy repented and came back and was reconciled. The church got it wrong again in Corinth, and Paul had to fix that. They had lots of problems in the Corinthian church. And then they wouldn't, they wouldn't let him back. They're like, no, nah, you were a sinner. You can't come back. Like, what a minute. You're big, like you were so tolerant. And, and now you're, so they, then Paul had to tell him, no, let him come back. He's repented. That's the whole point. He's okay. He's, he's, he's living right. He's not sinning anymore. He's welcome. Bring him back. So um, go to the brother directly, then bring a witness, then um, bring it to the church. And then if there's no reconciliation, then um, church discipline applies. But again, the point is reconciliation. The point is that God wants us to get along. The other thing is, listen, we can choose what offends us. You know, this doesn't apply. Like sometimes, um, you know, this is really not my style, but I have a pastor friend and he's constantly says things to his church like, you know, sometimes you just got to build a bridge and get over it. Sometimes you got to put on your big boy pants and wear your helmet. Sometimes you got to get a straw and suck it up. And, and that's not usually always my style. I think I'm a little more tender than that. But today, this is what I want to tell you about this. Get a helmet. Get a straw and suck it up. Build a bridge and get over it. Don't be, don't be offended so easily. Be, be, be more um, wanting to love. And if your heart is to love people, even when they have offended you, even when they are wrong, if your heart is, is reconciliation and love and mercy and grace, then, then, then you're not going to, you're going to have a hard time getting it wrong. And let's put love first. You know, I don't want to be right and alone. I don't want to be right all the time. I could care less about being right. I want to love people. So what? Somebody offended me. Let it go. Forgive them. Forget. Love. You get angry and, and you get upset with them and, and you're just an angry and upset person all the time. The next section, which I it tied right in and we needed to finish it today, but we just ran out of time, is where Jesus basically says, you have to forgive as a Christian. You don't have the right. Because God loves you so much, he's not going to allow you to stay in a prison of unforgiveness and bitterness. You have to forgive. You need to forgive. It's healthy for you. Amen? Amen. Let's have the worship team come up and close us in a song. We're going to be up front to pray for you. And I think lots of things going on um, this morning. And so we want to give everybody, we can stand, let's stand. We can give everybody an opportunity. If you would, um, if anybody needs individual prayer, um, some of us will be up front to pray for you. We'd love to pray for you as we sing this last song. If there's anybody in here today who 
um, needs to get their heart and life right with the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you're just not sure if you're born again and you've never placed your trust fully in Jesus that today you want to make sure that you do that. We want to give you that opportunity. And salvation, the Bible says, is very simple. Now, the God of salvation is not simple, but the path to salvation is a free gift. And all you need to do is, is receive it. Admit that you're a sinner. Know that you need a Savior, that you can't get to heaven on your own merits. That being a good person is not going to get you to heaven. And that even if you've sinned in one place your whole life, you're guilty of all the sin. And you need, therefore, need forgiveness. And Jesus offers that forgiveness for you. And he offers a relationship with you. And so if you're, you're in here today and you need to ask Jesus in your heart for, to be your Lord and Savior, we want to give you that opportunity. If you're in here today and maybe you've been struggling with not forgiving somebody or been struggling with some bitterness in your life, God wants, to forget, God wants to heal you from that. He doesn't want you as his children to be in the prison of unforgiveness because that unforgiveness that you have in your heart, it doesn't hurt, any, it doesn't hurt the person you, you've, you're mad at. It hurts you. It hurts the people that you love and love you the most is who get affected by that bitterness and by that hurt. And for that reason, God says you have to forgive. And then the other thing is God forgave you for a debt that you could never pay, equivalent of hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. Because your sin put him on a cross. And when someone else sinned against you, it's equivalent of somebody owing you 10 bucks. It's nothing compared to what God forgave you of. And God expects because he forgave you of hundreds of millions that you should forgive a brother of, of a trespass against you. It's in the Lord's Prayer. It's all the way through the Bible that we forgive. Amen? Will you guys do me a favor? Can we pray together out loud? And listen, I, I, just, I, I do this this way from time to time just so that if, you, if it's a you today who wants to ask Jesus in your heart, you don't have to be embarrassed. We don't have to put you on the spot. There does come a time where you, you're, you make your, your, your um, confession public because God never called anybody private. Something changes in your life when you make your confession of faith public and you, you're unashamed that you, you became a Christian or you asked Jesus in your heart and your life. But today, we'll just pray out loud, everybody. And there's no magic in the words or the prayer. But if in your heart you want to receive Jesus in your life, you mean this in your heart, God will hear you and God will answer your prayer today. And the, the Holy Spirit will come in your life. And the Bible says that the angels in heaven will rejoice over one sinner who was saved. Let's pray together. Dear Lord Jesus, please forgive me of my sin. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. I believe that you died and rose again the third day. I ask you to come into my heart. Forgive me of my sins. Be my Lord and Savior. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me pray for you guys. Father, I thank you so much for the, everybody in here. And Lord, if anybody's dealing with unforgiveness and bitterness today, God, if anybody needs to be reconciled to a brother, Lord, I pray that each one of us would have a heart of reconciliation, of love, of forgiveness. And God, that you would bless and that you, you, we would be a church that loves one another, God. We'd be a church, Father, that has a big picture mentality. And Lord, that you would work in each one of our hearts and lives, regardless where we are and how long we've been walking with you, that you'd continue to cause us to grow in Jesus and love people as, as we're loved. Lord, we thank you that you love us personally and intimately. And you left the 99 and you went after the one because of your personal and intimate love. And even in a crowd... You see each one as an individual that you love. We thank you that you loved us. God, we give you glory and honor in Jesus' name. Amen.